Hey team, welcome back to the show. Today, it is Coach Andrea and I once again, uh, and we are in part four of the body recomposition blueprint, really digging into the training side of things, um, how to optimize your training for a body recomposition. So first, Andrea, can you kind of highlight for us why your training is going to be such an important part of body recomposition? Yeah, I mean, as we talked about in the first part, uh, training is uh, going to be essentially the signal to your body to build muscle. And uh, while we are losing body fat, the training is a different system. And so we can still focus on dialing in the intensity and the um, exercise selection and all these other variables that we're going to touch on here and see a good amount of change in body composition through pulling those levers. Um with with fat loss, I know we've said this a lot, but when you just are focused on weight loss or even just fat loss, a lot of times you'll you'll be getting smaller, but you don't really see the shape of your body change a whole lot. And so when we put also a really heavy focus on the training side of things, then we really start to see that shape come through as we're losing body fat too. So this is a really huge deal for all of our clients who are not just looking for losing some weight and getting smaller, but actually changing their shape and how they look. Absolutely. Yeah. It's probably the most under, I would say building muscle, right? Training, the training is a signal for muscle growth, right? We don't see a body recomposition if you don't build muscle. And really, again, I think that training and in turn building muscle is the most underrated aspect of physique change. Nutrition is of course, very important. But again, especially if we're like in a, if we're in the type of body recomposition where you are in deficit, where you are actually losing body fat, if we don't have a good training stimulus in place, if you're not doing the proper things with your training, we're not going to build muscle, right? So the muscle growth side of things, and again, your training is so important. Again, I think this is so overrated. I think that, or underrated, excuse me. Um, again, nutrition is very important, but I'll say like, our clients get the results they do because they build a lot of muscle, right? We put out a lot of crazy body recomposition results. And that is because our clients build a lot of muscle. As you mentioned, like most people haven't pulled this muscle growth lever yet. Even those that have been training for a while, it's incredibly rare that someone starts coaching with us and their training is actually like what it needs to be to really optimally stimulate muscle growth. So thus, most people have a lot of potential to add muscle tissue here and like adding Adding five pounds of muscle. If you are a relatively lean person, adding five pounds of muscle to your frame will change the way your physique looks so much more than losing five pounds of fat. Because not only does it add more shape, so like let's say you've added a couple pounds of muscle to your glutes, the shape of your glutes is going to look completely different. But also, again, it will literally make us appear leaner. So again, our muscles will look larger and more defined and will also look leaner. So it just makes such a big difference for our physique. Um, anything you want to add on there before we dig into kind of just the basics of what stimulates muscle growth in the first place? No, let's get into it. Cool. Okay. So um, I think it's important to understand here what stimulates hypertrophy, aka muscle growth. So mechanical tension is going to be the primary driver of muscle growth. So basically think of that as the stress that is applied to a muscle which will generally be coming from an external resistance. Um, but to effectively signal hypertrophy, we need significant tension, not just tension, right? So for example, like if I do a band bicep curl, 
that is going to create some tension, some mechanical tension on my bicep fibers. But the basically the intensity, the uh, like that, the significance of that tension is going to be a key variable that determines will we really build muscle or not. So, like for example, I know like a long time ago when I first understood volume and just thought of it as sets times reps times weight. I was like, okay, cool. I can just go squat like 135 on the bar and squat like five sets of 10. It'll be super easy. And my quads will just get jacked because I'm doing a ton of volume. Now, nothing happened because again, well, yes, I was doing a lot of volume there. We're just looking at a set times reps times weight. The significant tension wasn't what it needed to be. So basically um, to generate significant tension within a set, we're going to need several important factors. So first execution. Now execution determines where the tension is going. So for example, you could do a set of Romanian deadlifts, um, but if you execute it poorly, let's say your back is really just rounding, you're really just leaning forward um, and your hips aren't moving much at all, more tension will be directed to your back versus to your hamstrings or your glutes, which we would want it to be in your hamstrings and or your glutes. So the way we execute the movement is really gonna dictate where the tension goes. So we need proper execution. Load. The load that we're lifting is also going to be an important variable here. So like you could just sit here and you could just flex your quads as hard as you possibly could, but that's not actually going to lead to muscle growth. Adequate load is the way we reach the threshold level of tension needed within a muscle to signal new growth. Um, volume is going to be important. So basically think of volume as we typically will just define this as number of hard sets stopped with, I would say like two or three reps or less in the tank within any given time frame for said muscle. And then finally, we need to be close to failure, right? So again, this is kind of within the theory of effective reps, but we need the set to stop. We need the set to be very close to or close to failure. So basically, um, as we get closer and closer to failure, we will recruit and fatigue more and more of the muscle fibers within a muscle and failure we won't ever actually be able to, we'll fail before like our brains won't let us actually go to the point where it's like these fibers are truly fatigued hundred percent. Almost think of it as like a, like protective mechanism. But when we hit to the point where we can't like do another rep there, we can basically for the sake of it, the sake of it, let's say that those fibers are fully fatigued. Right. And that is when like the more fatigue we're inducing there, the stronger basically the signal is that we are sending to our body to stimulate new muscle growth in that tissue. Now, if we are stopping like five reps shy of failure, really like that signal isn't going to be strong enough. Really, it's almost like the signal isn't going to come through much. So we're probably not going to see hardly any growth from that despite doing most of the work. So we need to be very close to failure. Um, so to kind of sum that up, to maximize muscle growth within a set, within a training session, let's just say within a set, we need good execution. The target muscle is the limiting factor that fails or would fail first. The sets need to be taken very close to failure. So typically two to three reps in the tank or less. And then when it comes to volume, items one through three need to be repeated enough times to create the needed stimulus for growth, but not too much to recover from, right? So again, basically we need good execution. We need the intensity to be there. We need to be close to, basically we need good execution. We need to be close enough to failure. And then kind of think of that as the, um, kind of think of that as like the total, like the stimulus we're providing and then the volume, basically the number of sets we do dictates how much of that stimulus our body is receiving. Um, or it's kind of like, Hey, we have adequate signal. And then this is almost like how much of the show are we going to watch or whatever? Um, cool. 
from there. Anything else to add that, to that before we get into training splits? I, I really think that of these things, what most people are missing whenever they're coming in is um, the intensity part of it. Absolutely. Most people have, that have been training, um, they've got quite a bit of volume. Most people are in that like three to four sets per exercise, um, camp and execution is typically pretty good as well. And so really the intensity is what most people are lacking. That is the, the thing that we tend to dial in that makes a pretty significant difference here. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And again, that's why like not, I don't think very many coaches like consistently are going to review execution videos and things of that nature, but that's why we're such sticklers about it. Where like we turn, we'll turn potential clients away if you're not willing to take form videos. It's that important because again, the execution is important. People oftentimes there's like a decent amount to be desired. They're still like when a new client starts, but the intensity again, it's like one, I was talking about this on the podcast with Jeff and Brandon that I recorded yesterday. Again, like when we mentioned this as well, like Natalie, I think is the only person I remember as an online client, as a client in general, actually, who has started the coaching process. And it's like, yep, your intensity is already where it needs to be. I yeah. didn't see, I didn't see your training because you were a nutrition only client. I imagine yeah. you're probably pretty good too. Um, I was training quite a bit differently at that time too. So the, the exercise selection wasn't. wasn't yeah. Right, I remember but... <laughs> when, you, when you started, you did, you set like a sumo deadlift goal, right? You wanted to mm-hmm. hit like a, yeah. I, I, I do remember that. Um, but that's again, like the form videos are such an important part of that. It's just the execution. Yes. But also the intensity and making sure that we really take it there. Right. And that's the, again, when we can assign like, Hey, I want you to push to like, Hey, the target, I want to add in an AMRAP set or something here. Um, that is such an important part of the coaching process and your ability to build muscle. And truly, yes, that is what most people are missing. It's very rarely, it's very rare that it's like, you're not doing enough volume. Uh, even like the type of training can oftentimes be out of place, but um, I feel like this whole different rabbit hole we can go down. But really, again, like I want to, uh, we're going to get into a lot more specifics here. Um, but again, want to make sure we kind of have a high level overview and understanding of what we need to simulate muscle growth within this podcast. So from there, let's talk through the most common training splits um, we would typically use in a body recomposition scenario. So I would say in a situation like this, we're probably, we're most likely going to have a client training three days a week or four days a week. Now, that three-day-a-week split could be either a three-day-a-week full body or something like an upper-lower full, I would probably do like a lower-upper full body or full body, upper-lower. I like to have a little bit more space between those lower body training sessions when we are going about that. Um, but that's probably more geared towards that person who is going to be able to build muscle and lose a a ton of fat at the same time or lose a considerable amount of fat at the same time, typically geared towards that more beginner client where it's like, Hey, we are so new to this training stimulus. We don't need to really do that much in order to stimulate muscle growth. Right? So again, this is typically that person who, Hey, maybe you aren't really, or maybe you've done like F45 orange theory, something of the sort, but we're really kind of brand new to like training in a manner that where we're trying to build muscle. Um, anything else you would add as far as a three day a week split? Uh, no. Okay. And then typically within that, like what we're looking for is the meat and potatoes of that. Again, it'll most often manifest as like a three day a week full body is we want to train a squat pattern 
or a lunge. Those two would be interchangeable. So this could be like a, this could be a leg press. This could be a split squat variation. Um, we want to train a hinge pattern. And so this could be something like a, uh, this could, or we could look at that as like quad dominant, glute dominant, which is more often actually how I'll look at it here. Cause I typically don't want people like, Hey, we're going to do like a RDL three days a week is going to be a little bit too much load on the spine, but it could be like, again, we're going to do a, we're going to do like a more quad bias pattern and we're going to do a more glute bias pattern. Right. And if we're, if that glute bias pattern is like an RDL, Hey, that'll touch on our hamstring as well. Um, whereas if that glute bias pattern is like, uh, a reverse lunge, then, Hey, maybe we're going to add in a leg curl and also train our hamstrings a little bit more within this also. And then, but again, we'll want to typically do like a quad bias pattern, a glute bias pattern, an upper body push, an upper body pull. And those are kind of going to be our meat and potatoes. We'll vary those patterns across the training week, right? So, and this will of course depend on your priorities as a client as well, but maybe it's like, okay, maybe day one, we're doing an incline press day two, we're doing a flat press and day three, maybe we're doing like a shoulder press, for example. Um, and similarly, like alternating between vertical and horizontal pulls with our, or it could even be like, Hey, maybe we're doing like a pure vertical pull, like a one arm lat pull down or a pull up on day one, maybe day two, we are doing a horizontal pull where we're going to be targeting a little bit more of our upper back, um, with like a chest supported T-bar row. And then maybe day three, we are going to do more like a lumbar lat pull down, right. Where maybe we're pulling at more so like 45 degrees, um, and then from there, again, depending on like the client's time availability, these are also typically people who don't have as much time to train. So the rest of our work will typically be like, hey, we want to make sure we train like our hamstrings well. Um, so we're going to touch on that a little bit more with like leg curls. Maybe glutes are a bit more of a priority. So maybe we'll add a little bit more glute volume with something like a glute knee kickback or a glute bridge or a 45 degree hip extension or something of the sort. Or maybe delts are a bit more of a priority, right? So we're adding a little bit more like lateral delt work. Um, but yeah, anything else on the full the three-day-a-week split? Um, I, I also really like either push pull full body or an upper mm. lower full body with those mm. two, but even with those different splits, the, the, the goal of hitting all of those major movement patterns remains the same. So usually if somebody is a little bit more experienced, I won't go as much toward the full body three times per week, just cause it can start to get pretty exhausting, um, right. with like doing legs three times. If you're pretty strong, mm-hmm. uh, you're just creating a lot of fatigue. And yeah. so I, that's where I'll like those other splits, but, um, yeah, I mean, you're still, like I said, over across the week, it's very, very similar. We're just managing it in different ways. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. And that's, I mean, even like, the, as you said, it does get harder, the more advanced you get, or like I have like my client Colin, what he's been a client of mine for, we're just about to hit our five-year mark now. And he's, he's made a ton of progress, but, um, he's never wanted to train more than three days a week, but he is pretty advanced by this point. So like we're doing, like we do chest specialization training just three days a week where it's two mm-hmm. days upper one day lower. And like when we increase frequency it's Hey, we're going to add like a cable chest fly on your lower body day as well. So you can definitely still work with it but you do have to be much more, you do have to be smarter about it. Typically then when we're talking about this client who the main lever that we're pulling for body recomposition is building muscle, which I would say is more common. Um, that we're probably going to err towards a four day a week split. I think that's typically going to be the best approach. We usually don't need more than that in this case. Um, but this will almost always look like a four day a week, upper, lower split. Now, 
with an approach like this, we can fit in a good amount of volume, a good amount of exercises. It'll typically be something like five to six movements per training day. Um, is a pretty realistic dose for most people. And you can grow across the board with this, but we can also hear like we have room to bias a few more tissues. Like it'll almost always be in a situation like this um, with most of the ladies we work with, at least I'm thinking of my roster, it's almost always, hey, glutes are going to be a little bit more of a priority for me. And delts or lats are almost always the other two, right? But then within this split, we have a little bit more room to uh, touch on all of those things as well. As far as the four day a week split, Anything else you want to add there? Yeah. Like you mentioned, you can bias things a little bit easier here with three days per week because you want to focus on more big, bigger bang for your buck exercises. There's just not Mm -hmm. often a lot of time for things like bicep curls, triceps, like those kind of movements where you're going to hit your biceps with a row, not ideal, but that's what you have time for. Um, so with the four day a week, I think as long as somebody has time for it in their schedule, I'll always go toward this so that we can focus on those priority, uh, muscle groups a little bit easier. Like you said, your, your client was able to do that is able to do that with the three days per week. But that also means that some other body parts are going to be pretty low volume in order to account for that. Yeah. And again, we still don't have to do a ton of movements here. Like when I'm looking at just like a general, like here's how I typically will approach this. Um, I just have one of my clients pulled up, programs pulled up. But again, it's almost always like, hey, we want to prioritize glutes and lats or glutes and delts a little bit more. So typically my first lower body day, I'll almost always start with like more of a quote unquote isolation movement. A short overload movement is typically what I'll start with. And sometimes that might be like, maybe that's a hip thrust or maybe that's a leg curl variation, right? We're always almost always gonna get into a movement that's gonna involve quite a bit of mo- movement at the knee joint after this. And I really like like programming a leg curl, a seated leg curl or a lion leg curl. Typically we'll lean more towards that seated leg curl, but it was, it'll lengthen their hamstrings a little bit more, but I almost always like to program that like first in this training day, or again, like something like even like a, a glute bridge, right? If it's a client where we want to add a, a little bit more volume specific to their glutes, that can work very well here. I really like like a, a, a glute drive or a Smith machine, like cast glute bridge is a great option or even a 45 degree hip extension. Um, and using that as, because the reality is like, as you get stronger, we are going to need a decent amount of time to kind of warm up our joints and prepare our body for these heavier compound movements. And this is a good way to like, we don't have to do that as much for like a glute bridge or a leg curl. But in the process of doing our working sets there, we are also effectively like quote unquote warming up for our next movements, which are going to be those more compound movements. So we can like save time there as well. Um, and then I'll typically go into probably something that's going to prioritize like a lengthened glute a little bit more. This is again, just like a very like high level. I'm probably not going to talk through this entire training program, but um, just high level, like for someone who is a little bit more like prioritizing glutes, probably like a lengthened glute movement. Like again, like a Smith machine or fit elevated split squats, a great option there. Single leg leg press is a great option there. Um, and then we'll probably go into another compound movement, right? So, and this would depend on how I had it set up. I might do like a leg curl, Smith machine or fit elevated split squat. Maybe then I want to do like add a little bit more glute volume still and do like a cast glute bridge. Because also I think if we go from like one compound movement to the next, like uh, a rear foot elevated split squat into like a leg press, or like I have like a hack squat into in my program, I have a hack squat. And then the next movement I have is an RDL where it's like, man, after my sets of hack squats, it takes me like, I feel like like 15 minutes to be back to normal before I can execute that well. 
I almost like like programming. Um, if I'm gonna do like short and overload movements, which are gonna be better, less fatiguing, almost like like programming that between the two if we can. So again, I like from an efficiency perspective, I think it makes a little bit more sense. So then I might do maybe I would do like a, again a glute bridge or a leg curl, whichever I hadn't done so far, or like a glute knee kickback. And then maybe we're gonna do um, another compound movement, which is typically gonna be like uh, kind of a two for one. So like a quad focused leg press is a good example of this, where we're gonna get even though it's quote unquote quad focused, still we're going to maximize our hip flexion. Basically like the glute is going to run out of range of motion. We're going to fully stretch the glute. We're not going to be able to typically, unless you have like a, even if you have like the cybex squat press, like I have still like my glutes run out of range of motion, my hips run out of range of motion way, way earlier. So really still, it's going to be like a ton of glute and a ton of quad. And I still like think typically it's like glutes that fail first on the leg press, even if when you are trying to make it a little bit more quad bias, it's just a pretty good glute and quad stimulus. Um, and then maybe we're going to add in something like if we haven't done so far, like a glute knee kickback or a cable crunch or something of the sort. And then the next lower body day, like might look pretty similar to that, or maybe we're prioritizing quads a little bit more. So maybe we'll flip that order, right? Where maybe it's, if it's just like balance, maybe it would be like a leg curl, something that's going to be more quad bias, like a hack squat. Then maybe we're going to do a leg extension. And then maybe we're going to go into something that's like a good amount of gluten quads, like a roof elevated split squat. Again, like what kind of more of one of those combo movements? Um, you know, I could do this with the upper body too, but I think that that might, like, we might start to lose the audience. And also if you want to get this deep, hire us, we'll, we'll lay this out for you very in depth. Anything else to add on the four day a week split? No, I do things very similarly. And I, I have started shifting a little bit more and more like similar to what you had said with doing those isolation exercises for lower body mm -hmm. ahead of one or two of the bigger compound lifts, just because it reduces the amount of weight that you need to use and pre-exhaust pre -exhaust a little bit. But also, like you said, it gives you time to just sit <laughs> for right. a minute on leg extension or leg curl before getting to it. So I like Absolutely. that. Okay. So next up we need to talk about the SRA curve. Um, because the important thing to understand is the SRA curve stands for stimulus recovery adaptation. So basically this is essentially how the process of muscle growth occurs, right? This is actually muscle growth taking in place because the thing to understand here is when we're talking about these training splits and the amount of volume the client is doing within this and the amount of movements they're doing within the training day, this will almost always be quite a bit less than what the client was doing previously. Um, less total sets, less movements for training day. A lot of people think they need to be training six, seven days a week when it is incredibly rare. I have yet to find a client, come across a client who needs to train six days a week to grow when we're doing things in an intelligent manner. We often find that less is more. And again, the SRA curve really illustrates the importance of this. So basically, um, building muscle is going to be a game of getting the right amount of muscle building stimulus without creating too much fatigue to recover from. So essentially imagine we go into a training session to really simplify this. We go into a training session with your muscles at a baseline. Now, every set you do is incurring fatigue. It is driving you further and further below that baseline. Now, almost like this isn't again, like this isn't actually exactly how this works, but I think it's an easy way to illustrate it. Imagine it's like you start here and it's break, you start at that baseline and it is breaking down your muscle. It's digging a hole in that muscle. Every set we, we get, every set we do, um, the harder we push, it digs it a little bit, that the hole a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper. Now from there, 
before we can actually grow, we have to be able to just recover back to our previous baseline. We have to be able to fill that hole basically. Now our recovery is going to really be tied into first, like how deep was that hole? How much do we have to recover from? How much food we're taking in? So like when we're in a deficit, how much we can recover from will be different. How's our sleep? How's our stress management? Um, what are our hormones like? All these variables are very important, which is also why we're so big on looking at the, the complete picture. This is why we talked about like, the first thing we talked about was how to set up, a, set the foundation for a healthy, responsive body, right? That's why we talked about like that primer phase more before anything else, um, because this is a whole ecosystem of things that's going to impact our progress. But basically we need to make sure that again, we have all of our recovery resources in a good place. So, and then it's only from there, if we can recover from what, from that hole, basically we have enough recovery resources to again, like kind of fill up that hole in our muscle, so to speak, only from there, if we have anything left over, and we still continue to grow. Now, the thing is, again, especially if you're doing a ton of training, right? If you're doing tons of sets, we're doing 40, 50 sets per training session, that is going to incur a lot of fatigue if we're training six, seven days a week. Again, a lot of times it might be in a place where it is too much for you to actually recover from and grow. The best your body can do is just get back to its previous baseline. And then again, we also have to look at, for a lot of people who are training that often, it's just junk volume. Right. Because the thing is, like we talked about, we talked about those, like, hey, that set where we're stopping with five reps in the tank, that's not going to be very stimulated for muscle growth, but that does still come with a fatigue cost. That does still incur fatigue that we have to recover from. So even if it's not a stimulative set, it does still incur fatigue that we have to recover from. And a lot of people in instances like this are just doing a ton of junk volume, right? So we're not actually getting much muscle growth stimulus, but we are incurring a lot of fatigue that we have to recover from. So again, we find, hey, with us doing less, but just pushing for better. Let's get as much out of each of these sets as we possibly can. Let's push as hard as we can. We get so much better stimulus, so much less fatigue. And it is easy, so easy for us to get past the recovery point, basically to fill that pole and get to the point where our muscles are actually adapting and growing. Anything else to add there before we move into volume? This is also, I, I, I've sent this to so many people recently Same. yeah, who want to do more and more and more and who have um, either added a bunch of cardio on top of our training or are just coming from a place where they're doing all of the things all the time, like so much training five days a week, training or more doing cardio several days per week and are just digging such a big recovery hole. There's no way to get out of it and adapt and recover. And I think that this is where a lot of our people who see such a great result is because now all of a sudden recovery is optimized and our training volume is appropriate. And now we're actually recovering and filling that muscle hole <laughs> completely so that we're able to, to actually grow and see a difference. And I, I think that, um, there's, there's just the, the, I think most people are thinking in the direction of, I need to make sure that I'm doing enough, that I get enough, um, stimulus, but just driving that with volume where we're not thinking appropriate volume with the right intensity, but still being able to dig out of that hole. If that makes right. sense. Yeah. No, this reminds me so much of Lexi. My client Lexi is a great example of this, right? When she started, she was eating like 1400 calories a day. If that she was doing so she was like training five, six days a week, um, doing a lot of volume, doing like classes on top of that, running on top of that and doing like a lot of extra cardio on top of that. And right now she does one day a week cardio. That's it. 
we have her eating a lot of food and her training, she's training four days a week. We don't have her doing more than two sets on any movement in her training program. And like, I'm looking over her training log right now and it's insane. Like everything she's PRing like crazy. She's making so much progress, but it is so much less than she was doing previously. But also she's gotten so much better at the things like she's not training fasted anymore. She's really focusing on fueling herself for food quality. And she's so good at pushing hard now. She's one of the hardest training clients on my roster. Um, it just makes such a difference. But okay, talk us through volume. Um, first again, can you kind of just refresh the listeners on what volume is? Yeah, volume is is technically sets times reps times weight, but Typically, whenever we're talking about volume, we're just talking about weekly sets, right? Is that t- mm-hmm. how you tend to think about it? Yeah, I think um, of like weekly hard sets per muscle group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so not including warm up sets or anything like that. It's right. just like your top sets, the te- the sets where you're really pushing for intensity. Right. Um, so training volume across the week, according to research, should be between ten and twenty sets per body part, but that's very Vague, like that's a very big range. Mm-hmm. And so um when when we're looking at volume, what I like to uh start with is somewhere on the lower end and just dial in the intensity. And uh from there we can see if anything needs adjusted. But typically once you dial in that volume, or oh, sorry, once you dial in that intensity volume doesn't really have to be crazy high is that what you found yeah oh yeah for sure um and you also have to like understand there's a lot of carryover right like i talked about the um the like quad focused leg press that's gonna be like a good i would consider that volume for like a set of volume for your glutes and a set of volume Mm -hmm. for your quads right so i don't i think 10 to 20 sets like is a general recommendation for sure also like you can make progress on like for example like again like bringing it back to like lexi's program she has two sets of biceps per week now direct sets of biceps per week now they're still progressing but also like all of her all of her pulling movements that is still going to be her biceps are going to be working there so there's there's a lot of nuance there um i think that i don't know if we necessarily even need to get into like when to adjust volume keep it the same decrease it because i think that can almost get a little bit confusing but i agree like i think that especially once you have the intensity in place again your volume just typically doesn't need to be nearly as high as we'll see in most training programs especially when we're getting to like four to five sets um if you are someone who is newer to truly training properly for hypertrophy which most people are i i don't think it needs to be that high to see good progress no, you want to make sure that it's recoverable. Like going back to the SRA curve that we just talked about, if it's not recoverable, then it's just making you tired and you're not no. getting better from it. So if we start on the little bit lower end, then you can make sure that you're uh, recovering from it, but also that you're able to push hard enough because with those those exercises where sets are up into like four or five, six, like you just talked about, it's mentally nearly impossible to push yourself really, really hard for Mm -hmm. that many sets. So I know for, for me doing a set of hack squats, once I, like I I pushed a failure twice on those. And if I were to have to do that a third time, (laughs) I think I would start to talk myself out of 
really pushing it there on the first set or two, because you know that you're going to have to do that again. And it's, it's painful. So that's the biggest thing I, I think with the biggest advantage to lowering the volume back to two to three sets per training, uh, per, per exercise is now mentally, we're really able to take it where we need to in order to have the most amount of stimulative reps. Yeah. I don't think that I think like from a purely, if I was a researcher, I think probably still like more volume than we actually prescribe would be like on paper, what was more optimal. I think like, Mm -hmm. if Hey, we have all the other variables in place. You probably would grow from more from three to four sets taken to the true, like one RIR versus two. But again, it's like in reality, I've talked, I've used the example many times with like my client who was like, Hey, my, my, my split squat isn't progressing. So I want to bump this up to four sets and add more volume. So this will progress quicker. And I was like, Hey, actually we're going to pull you back to two sets. So you only have two chances to get this right. You better push this. Suddenly our split squats were progressing. Right. Um, I think that again, like on paper and like, if we were to like write a study about this and like, we like could really control all these variables and had people who truly were like taking it there all the time. I think we would probably find that like a little bit more volume than what we might typically prescribe would be more optimal in that instance. But again, that's just not the real world, right? In reality, again, I think it's, it does just help people train so much harder and thus we get a much better result than we would otherwise. Yeah. Cool. And then since we're talking about body recomp, part of the part of body recomp in terms of seeing fat loss while we're also trying to build muscle is being in a calorie deficit. And so for people recomping who are in a calorie deficit, that's where I'll make adjustments to intensity. So typically volume actual sets is not something that I'm making very big adjustments to, but instead, whenever somebody's eating in maintenance or a surplus, that's where we can do all of the fun stuff. Like we're going to add a drop set or lengthen partials or myo reps. And then in a uh, deficit, I'm going to usually pull those back unless it's something like a lateral raise, uh, something very low fatigue. If it's uh, any sort of lower body squat pattern, um, any of the big compound lifts, we're probably not going to be doing much in terms of your intensity techniques in a deficit. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, and that's exactly how I will approach it as well. Um, I do, I do like to like add more intensity techniques typically before I like adding like, Hey, just another straight set, but it will also depend on the movement. Um, cool. Okay. We, so, I mean, rest times, I also think are an important variable here that often gets overlooked. I know it's kind of, it's not the most sexy variable, but it really is so important. Um, so when it comes to rest times, we do want to make sure that we can actually, again, take that tissue close to failure. Now it's important to understand that when we do a set, your nervous system fatigues, right? So we have central fatigue and we have peripheral fatigue. So peripheral fatigue, let's say you did a set of, let's say we did a set of uh, leg extensions. Peripheral fatigue is gonna be that fatigue you actually feel in your quads. Um, now the peripheral fatigue will go away quickly, pretty quickly. Um, most of the time of course that's going to depend on the movement as well but peripheral fatigue will go away quicker than central fatigue will central fatigue is again going to actually be fatigue in your nervous system now your nervous system is going to be a big part of your nervous system is basically what's responsible for recruiting firing the muscle fibers that are working within a set so if i am not resting long enough basically going into that next set my nervous system isn't going to be able to recruit 
And thus, I'm not going to be able to fatigue as many of those muscle fibers in my quads as if I had rested a little bit longer. And as a result, I'm not going to get as good of a stimulus from that set. Um, so within this, like when we're cutting our rest periods too short, not to mention then a lot of times, like if this is not a compound movement, if your rest periods are too short, part of it's central fatigue, but part of it's also just your cardio system, right? If I do like my hack squats and I'm only, if I'm really pushing my hack squats hard, like I, I have to rest, especially as I get to, because I do have four sets of hack squats, especially as I get to like my like third and four sets, I have to make sure I'm hitting like five minutes of rest between sets. Even like that four is really the pushing it. And I might just need to do more cardio. I actually do cardio every single day. So um, I don't think that's the problem actually. Um, but uh, yeah, that's going to be an important variable is often overlooked. So really like when it comes to rest periods, I mean, it will depend on the movement, right? The smaller the muscle tissue we're working, and there is some debate about this, but I think in general, for smaller muscle groups, a two minutes is a very, very safe bet for like a lateral raise, a bicep curl, a tricep extension, et cetera, a leg extension, a leg curl, typically like two minutes is going to be a pretty good bet. Um, if it's something that, like I think a glute bridge even can be a little bit more fatiguing, sometimes even pushing that to closer to three minutes, I would really like gauge on like how winded you, you feel. Um, but your glutes are going to be a larger muscle than like your lateral delts, for example. Um, but I think that like anything below 90 seconds, honestly, I think is pushing it a little bit too much. On our compound movements where we are incurring a lot more fatigue, especially your lower body compound movements, like your split squats, your leg presses, your hack squats, your RDLs, if we don't feel like we need to rest three minutes between sets, I think we're probably not pushing hard enough. We can like go on match reps and we're resting less than resting less than three minutes. I would say we're definitely not pushing hard enough. So really like, again, like those compound movements, anywhere from three to five minutes can be a pretty good rule of thumb. Now, if it's like a, a rowing pattern, a pull down, I'm probably not going to need more than like three minutes rest. If it is a Again, like a hack squat, again, probably going to get closer to like four to five minutes. Um, anything else to add there? No, I mean, I think that summarizes it. If it. Really, the more muscle tissue you're working at the same time, the more oxygen you're going to be utilizing, the more you need to rest to recover, <laughs> to yeah. be able to push it again. So that and, that, and that makes sense. Like whenever you're doing a big lower body compound exercise, that's working most of your body from the waist down. And right. so that's a lot of tissue working at the same time. And whenever you're doing a lateral raise or a lat pull down or something like that, it's a very relatively smaller amount. So, um, you just, it's kind of like a sliding scale based on that. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Finally, let's get into exercise selection keys. So really how do you pick the right movements for building muscle? Now well, I'm going to try to wrap this up quickly because I got to make a call in 12 minutes here. So, <laughs> um, I've laid out six, seven keys here. Um, first is going to be for hypertrophy. We want the target muscle tissue to be the limiting factor. So it's pretty common for people to mess this up where, again, basically, if the goal for this movement is I want to build my glutes, I want a glute stimulus, then we need to be the glute. We need the glutes to be the thing that's the limiting factor. We need to be the glutes, the glutes to be the thing that would fail or does fail and causes you to stop the set, not your grip. It's unstable. Uh, again, like cardiovascular fatigue, I'm just gasping for air. It's not actually my glutes. Um, so like, again, some common examples of this would be grip giving out first, right? So think like an RDL, we want our hamstrings or our glutes to be the limiting factor. But if you're not using wrist straps, your grip, your grip should be weaker than the weight that your glutes 
you should your grip should fail unless you have extremely like weak glutes or hamstrings your grip should fail but before your glutes or hamstrings do you want a movement like an rdl so use wrist straps there um instability is another common example so think like uh there's like the doing squats on a bosu ball right that's never like your quads are actually so fatigued that we have to stop the set it is you're gonna fall over even though movements like a dumbbell split squat a dumbbell walking lunge for a lot of people especially if we're not extremely intentional with this the stability can be a limiting factor there we already talked about the cardio system quite a bit but that's another very common one you're not taking long enough rest periods between sets typically in that case or we're doing like jumping jacks and shit like that between our sets which just we don't need to do um an inability to maintain maintain technique so this can be less this can even be more so like a hey maybe a back squat isn't a good movement for you for hypertrophy because you're we're trying to grow your quads with this movement but you tend to like maybe your butt starts to shoot up as we get closer to failure or your hips start to shift and that's the thing that forces us to stop the set rather than it truly being like there's so much tension in my quads um next up we need to consider the stability coordination and skill requirements so typically the more stable a movement is the easier it'll be for us to push very close to failure with the target muscle group being the limiting factor so all these things kind of tie in together um, on the flip side, movements that are very unstable and or require a high amount of skill will typically be harder for clients to, keep, to get the desired stimulus from, right? So um, a hack squat is, again, a great example of this or a leg press, I think, is a great example of this. Leg press, all we have to do is like, hey, sit in the seat, probably lean the seat all the way back, depending on the leg press, push your feet here. Let's go as low as we can without our butt or lower back rounding off the pad and just push. We can get a great stimulus out of that week one. On the flip side, barbell back squat, essentially going to train these same tissues. And it's going to be a very similar, very, very similar movement pattern for most people to what we're doing with the leg press. We could spend years trying to master your barbell back squat. And for most people, unless you're already a great squatter, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take a long time for us to really get a good stimulus from that. Right. So again, the stability, the skill requirements are a big variable there now that's not to say like we're only ever going to use machines right there is definitely uh, there's definitely a lot more nuance here but again typically we're going to err towards more stable options um next is the movement more challenging in the lengthened basically think the stretch position or the shortened position which is going to be when the muscle is contracted so just as a quick example of that um for looking at your quads again like a back squat or a leg press or, or a hack squat a back squat or a hack squat for example those are going to be hardest at the bottom of the movement when your quad is stretched. It's going to be pretty easy at the top. So those are a lengthened overload movement. A leg extension, typically going to be pretty easy at the bottom, hardest at the top when your quads are contracted. That's a shorter overload movement. Now, um, most of the research seems to indicate that lengthened overload movements will be more stimulated for muscle growth than short overload movements. We'll also typically just train a larger quantity of tissue with a lengthened overload movement versus a shortened overload movement. Again, if we look at that like quad-focused leg press, we're getting a lot of glutes, a lot of quads, a lot of adductors there. If we look at a leg extension, we're just training the quads. And again, not as much of the quads as we would be in a leg press. So um, with most clients, we're going to want about a two-to-one to potentially even three-to-one ratio of lengthened overload to short overload movements. Because again, lengthened overload movements are going to pr provide the greatest amount of stimulus. Um, so they're very much our bread and butter. Um, especially if we don't have the luxury of loss of time 
or training days with a client, we're going to almost always prioritize lengthened work over shortened work. And shortened overload work is kind of going to be the icing on the cake. It does still contribute to the overall muscle growth and creates a better cake, but it's not the most important piece here. Um, so for example, like again, with a client with limited time, we're probably only going to worry about short overload movements for the muscle groups they want to prioritize, right? So maybe it's like, hey, glutes are a priority for you. We're only training three days a week. So cool. We're going to do like this length of overload movement for your glutes. And then at the end of the training day, we're going to add a little bit more volume with a short overload movement, like a hip thrust, for example. Or let's say we have a female client who doesn't care about growing her pecs much. Um, for overall structural balance and joint health and things of that nature, we probably would still want to train her chest, but it might be, hey, maybe we're going to do one to two presses per week which are going to be more lengthened overload. We're probably not going to waste time doing like a short overload movement like a chest fly. Um, but on the flip side, lengthened overload movements also cause the greatest amount of fatigue. So this can also be a tool when it is like, hey, I want to apply more volume to grow my, this client's glutes specifically, but I think I may be pushing their ability to recover from this. If I add in like another lengthened overload movement, that is when, okay, let's add in a little bit more specific movement like a hip thrust or a glute kickback where that won't be nearly as fatiguing, but we can add more of that total stimulus to the glutes. Um, failability is going to be an important factor. So can it be trained close to failure relatively safely? So basically the client can maintain good technique as they approach failure. Um, movements can be failed safely. So again, think like there's a safety mechanism to catch the load when the client fails, right? So we've talked about this a lot with like a split squat. Hey, you can just put the safeties up on a Smith machine. You can just put the safeties up. Worst thing that happens if you fail is the weight drops a couple more inches, right? Whereas failing like a barbell back squat, especially if you don't have the safeties up, is terrifying. Um, or like a barbell bench press, right? If there's not safeties in place to catch that. And even then it's kind of scary. Um, whereas so many of like our machine options or like our dumbbell options are or our cable options where it's very, very safe for us to fail. Thus, it's easy to push very close to failure. That is the one thing I don't like about my leg press is there is no safety. So mm -hmm. that that thing like comes like the pat the the it will come like all the way to the seat basically the foot plate will and it's so scary because it, you use that leg press now too huh i do now yeah i definitely got in it and let it come all the way back the first time just to make sure that i was not going to get killed <laughs> if it did if Can i you did get out of it failure. Yeah. My, my knees are definitely up in my armpits, but I can get out of it. I have like the mobility, I guess, to, to be okay. that squished and still not be hurt. So you I can fail it, but it's, and it could be just a slightly different variation of it, but yeah, um, yeah ones like that are, are definitely more scary. And this is also the biggest problem with not problem, but the biggest um, thing with home gyms is normally where we've got a barbell, dumbbells, maybe some bands. And that makes a lot of these things a lot more difficult because then we do need to do some barbell back squats and right. we just have to be able to push those close enough, have the safeties there um, and know how to just sort of fail down to the safeties. But that definitely is a big, a big tricky part about programming with home gym for hypertrophy. Yeah, no, absolutely. But again, we need to be able to push very hard. And finally, it doesn't aggravate any injuries or issues specific to the client. Um, similarly, practicality is going to be important. I would say probably the most important of all this, like how easy is it for the client to actually do the movement well, right? Where again, if we have a brand new client, it's like we're going to do a rear foot, front foot elevated, yada, yada, yada. It can almost get to be a little bit over complex where it's like, how can we put a shoe in a position to just load this up? execute well, get the stimulus we want without having to think too much about it. 
um, doesn't mean the client's time constraints. So again, if it takes a ton of time to set up or it's a superset that isn't practical. Um, well, yeah, um, I pass that again. Like, is it unnecessarily complex? Pretty similar to what I mentioned before. Um, so finally from there, I think it's just important to understand again, when we're talking about training, how vital the synergy between the training and the nutrition is. Again, we kind of touched on this before, but we always need to consider what's the primary stimuli and what's the secondary stimuli here, right? So again, like in, when we are typically more focused in a fat loss phase, we are very much focused on, okay, we're going to make the adjustments we need to keep you losing at a good rate. And so that's going to be based on our nutrition. That's the primary stimuli. Fat loss is the primary thing we're chasing. And then from there, we kind of adjust the program as needed to make sure that we can still recover within that, right? So um, that might be, hey, we are pulling back on volume a little bit more. We're not doing as many intensifiers, et cetera, et cetera. On the flip side, I think that is one thing where we are, when we are very much focused on a body recomposition, we are almost kind of like prioritizing both of these things equally. And that is where like, hey, we might be okay with a little bit slower rate of loss here if we are focusing on fat loss, because we also want to make sure that we aren't having to pull back much on the training stimulus, right? So, but again, like understanding that those two things very much need to be working in synergy. Um, and again, that's something that we're, is such an important part of our coaching service as well, like achieving that, that synergy between training and nutrition. Now you and I recorded an entire podcast on that. I will link that up in the show notes. So you can go check that out. Um, we better wrap this up here, but I think we did a pretty good job touching on the training side of things. Anything else you want to add before we wrap it up? No, let's wrap it so you can go to your call. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, as always, thank you guys for tuning in. If you want us to just coach you through this, um, if you've loved this series, but you're not sure how to actually apply all this to yourself, got you. Just hit the link in the show notes to apply to work with our team. Um, and that is all we have for this time.